Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. Studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Let's get something straight right off the bat. Even if you're a card-carrying member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, your forebearers were still immigrants. Unless you're a Native American, you're part of the immigrant population that has made us the great nation we are. But it's not so great to be an immigrant in America today, and no one knows that better than a restaurant owner. Chef Rick Bayless joins us to talk about the current situation in his Chicago-based restaurants and how he's attempting to address the situation head-on in the workplace. Then, Eddie Hernandez of Atlanta's Taqueria del Sol joins us to explore the way he's combined his Latino heritage with the flavors of the American South something that's been a big part of Chef Edward Lee's life path as well. Korean-born Edward Lee grew up in Brooklyn, but found his soul in Kentucky. We'll sit down with Edward to explore his personal journey to discover America's new melting pot cuisine. I'll have some tortillas with my turnip greens kimchi on this week's Louisiana Eats. Restaurants big and small have felt the shockwaves of our country's current debate on immigration. To get a better understanding from a restaurateur's perspective, we turn to Chef Rick Bayless. Rick's award-winning Mexican restaurants have always been bolstered by workers who come from immigrant backgrounds. When we saw Rick recently, he shared how he and his employees are grappling with uncertainty during this tenuous time. I think as human beings, um, compassion needs to be at the heart of all of our choices. And um, certainly um, for most of the immigrant population, certainly all of the refugee population, they're moving from very hard times and looking for a better life for themselves. And so I think that we need to be open and have a compassionate spirit about that. I also think that it's really important for us to just be thoughtful about things. Um, um, first of all, thoughtful about the fact that our country is, a, uh, is, except for the Native American population in our country, the rest of us are all immigrants. We all came here, our ancestors came here from someplace else were accepted into the fabric of the society that we've built here. And I think we need to have compassion on those who are finding themselves in almost exactly the same place that our immigrants found themselves in when they came to this country. So I, I, I don't think there's an easy answer for any of this. And of course, you have to protect your, um, your society. But I think that we are rich enough and big 
big enough that we can open our arms to a lot of people who are in are searching for something better for themselves, want to be part of the American dream, if you will. So in our restaurants, we obviously, in the restaurant, we're in all of the service industry, you're going to find a whole lot of immigrants. And the, the kind of work that we do, sometimes people look down on. I look up at it because we're the people that get to host all of our guests, whether you're working in a hotel or in a restaurant or a coffee shop. We, are the, we get to be the hosts for people and bring joy to these people. And I think if we wiped out all of the service industry by getting rid of all immigrants that are in that sector, it would, it would cripple our society. Not only because we've forgotten how to cook and so people would have to go back to cooking at home and that would be a big task for them. But at the same time, we wouldn't find ourselves gathered around tables and when we gather around tables, we create the nucleus of community. And all of the people working in the service industry allow that to happen. And they allow it to happen in a, in a simple way, in an easy way for us. So those of us go out to eat, we sometimes don't realize how they, the, all the people in the service industry are facilitating our creating community with our family and our friends. And I say I'm the luckiest guy in the world because my job is to create community by offering a place for people to gather and to bring joy to people. And I think that you will find in the immigrant community people who understand that probably in a deeper way, in a, a sort of more intuitive way than almost all of our guests. And those people, they love taking care of people. They love creating special experiences for people and bringing them joy. Do you have any situation that you could share with us where you've sort of felt personally caught in the tension in this climate we find ourselves in? There's a general sense of tension that it just hovers over a lot of people. Um, even people who have all of their papers in order and all that, they feel at any moment they can be swept up with the rest of them and it could completely change their lives at any moment. So there's a sense of tension uh, that way. But where I really sense it and, and it creates a certain level of sadness is those kids who were brought here um, maybe when they were one or two years old, the dreamer kids, and the only world they have ever known is living in the U.S. They've been through school. They've worked with us, um, sometimes risen up to really high positions with us. Um, they're certainly contributing major things to our society, to our local communities. And um, there is a, a real, I've noticed over the last several months, a quietness about them. Uh, let's keep our heads down. Let's just do our work, and and who knows if we're going to be here next next week, next next year. Um, and don't make any plans. And that for for people who have completely been raised in the United States, you could say they just didn't happen to be born here. Um, that's a really odd position to be in. And those are the people that I'm most concerned about. Well, you are such a humanist above every else that you are what are you doing personally what do you find yourself doing to try to quiet the nerves to try to 
calm your staff? Our approach to it has to has been to let our staff know that we have their back. Okay, so there was this day without immigrants that came uh, a year or so ago. And everybody wanted to go to the rally because they wanted to support. If they were immigrants, then they wanted to be there and, and be part of it. If they weren't immigrants, they wanted to support their friends that are immigrants. And um, so we didn't know exactly how to handle it because it seemed like we weren't going to have enough people to run our restaurant. So what we did is we called everybody together, just everybody together. And I said, look, I'm going to let you guys make the decision about this. We can just close the restaurant and we can just say we, we support this day without immigrants because to tell you the truth, it was supposed to show people what could happen if we got rid of all the immigrants. What would happen in, in, uh, in our world and where would you not be able to go? And let's just think about all of this so we can kind of put it in perspective. And um, 100% of the people in our staff voted to close. So we closed. I think that that was one of the gestures that we did um, as a restaurant, uh, making that decision together, that let um, the staff, our immigrant staff, know that we, we had their backs, that we're not going to take this lightly. We're not going to just say, hey, you know, you, you're on your own. You can figure it out yourself. But uh, we were going to offer them everything that we could. And um, I will say that we have built our restaurant on the foundation of, of compassion and respect, and uh, we will continue to do that. Rick Bayless, chef and owner of Chicago's Frontera Restaurants. come back from a short break, we sit down with Chef Eddie Hernandez. Eddie's one of a generation of immigrants who have found success by playing on the similarities between their culinary heritage and Southern ingredients. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Brennan's Restaurant, home of the original breakfast at Brennan's and flaming bananas foster with modern Creole cooking by three-time James Beard Award finalist Slade Rushing. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and private events at 417 Royal Street in the French Quarter. My name is Eddie Hernandez. I'm one of the owners and partners in I do the R&D. I'm the executive chef for Taqueria del Sol in Atlanta. And I just wrote a book called Ton of Greens and Tortillas that is really going to shock people. 
even more shocking than Eddie Hernandez's combination of turnip greens and tortillas is how artfully he moves between Southern and Mexican foodways. Throughout his award-winning career, Eddie has revolutionized the food scene in Atlanta by playing on the best aspects of his own heritage and the South's expanding culinary scene. When we sat down with Eddie in our Louisiana Eats studio, I asked him how he first got started in the kitchen. Oh, it was a natural thing for me because uh, my grandmother and my mom, you know, they were excellent cooks, including my, my uncle. And it was embedded in me at a really young age how important it is to know how to cook. Uh, not thinking business-wise later, but being able to fend for yourself. One of the things I believe you've really become known for is recreating authentic Mexican street food. Tell me what makes that food so unique I, and special. I don't special. know, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, you know, when back in Atlanta there was really nothing that resembled what we eat in Mexico. And then uh, some people started to advertise that that was authentic Mexican food, and I thought it was a lie. So... One day I just said, you know, I really need to educate these people about what we actually eat in Mexico, and it's none of this stuff. So I started doing more traditional Mexican cooking, and I started teaching, doing a little bit of classes here and there, and I always talk about what we eat in Mexico, what a lot of people don't understand about Mexican food. There was a movement in the mid-90s called Southwestern Cuisine, by people like, you know, Stephen Powell's and uh, Dan Ferrin, uh, Robert Del Grande in Houston. And it was a big success. And nobody knew that actually Mexican cuisine started in Mexico, <laughs> not in the Southwest, because we had the French living in our country for many, many years. So we learned all the sauces, uh, how to make bread, how to make pastries, how to cure meats. We learned so much from them, you know, and one Cinco de Mayo, uh, we decided that we didn't have anything else to learn, so we kicked them out. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, you learned how to make French bread and all that, and then the French <clears throat> could go. <laughs> yes. You know, and so once people started to find out that uh, we were different and that I was actually showing food that they never seen, then we started to get a lot of attention, and eventually people did their own research, and, and they find out that I was really not lying, but actually cooking what we eat. Now, how important do you believe it is to make your own tortillas? In in Mexico, you have to. I mean, you know, oh, luckily for us in Mexico, we have all these tortilla houses where they, you know, cook the corn and ground it and make their own tortillas. You can just buy kilos of now. Here in the United States, it's not that easy, even though that I... I'm pretty good about finding sources to make fresh tortillas. I, I'm sorry for what I'm going to say, but a lot of people don't appreciate the work that goes into making fresh corn tortillas. It's like I just did a uh, black tortillas with uh, with lacoche and squid ink for something that I wanted to test. So that type of tortilla will actually be so interesting that you're going to have to try it. And then you're going to go, wow, this tortilla is not the same. And then I will say, well, the white ones are the same, except they don't have the, with like coaching the squid ink. And uh, then, then they'll be willing to go 
to the white one because it's fresh and it's tasty. And so they cannot take back anything once they said that it's good. So it's going to take a little while, but we're, we're in the right track. You know, eventually everybody will want to buy fresh tortillas. So let's go back to those red beans and rice burritos. What's up with that? And how did you start making those? Uh, it's just one of those wacky days that I woke up with this thing in the head about doing something. I like red rice and beans. You know, one of my favorite places for red rice and beans is not in Louisiana, but it's actually in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh. It's a guy native to here, uh, taught English. And he has a restaurant in, in Memphis. And I... And, my, my partner and I, we went over there for dinner one time. I don't know what we were doing. And he had red rice and beans, so I tried it. And they had the lard flavor that we like when we cook with lard. And I said, this thing will be killer in a burrito. I got to find a way to do it. So I went back, and a week later I came back with this uh, recipe with red rice and beans and, uh, and sausage to add value to the, to the dish. And I did a burrito. And then we serve it both ways. We serve it fry or just roll. I would love to hear you explain why you even called the book Turnip Greens and Tortillas. Why are turnip greens as iconic to you as tortillas? It, that really wasn't. It's, it's a great story about the turnip greens. In uh, 1987, we had a restaurant in the south side of Atlanta, and we had a customer named Bobby Avery and his wife, Juanita, who I really like. And one day, Bobby came in, and he had a, a trash bag full of turnip greens. And he says, Eddie, I want you to cook this. If anybody can make this thing famous, it's you. And I said, well, thank you, Bobby. And then they, I took him to the kitchen and never did anything with it. They went bad. So the next Friday, he comes back with another bag. Now I'm feeling bad. So I went to Mike and I said, Mike, what do you do with these things? <laughs> he looked at it, he goes, a ton of greens. And I said, okay, what do you do with it? He goes, well, you cook them, you eat them. And I said, how do you cook them? And he says, oh, I cannot explain this to you, but you're really good about picking up flavors. Let's go to Mary Max, who's supposed to get the best ton of greens in the city. So we go there and I go, Oh, I got it. It's a soup. He goes, yeah, I mean. It's a soup. Yeah. And he says, well, what did you expect? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I thought that you would treat him like a spinach. And uh, he said, no. I went back to that restaurant, and he explained to me that everybody uses him hot, some bean and garden, this and then. And I started to think about some of the plants that we have in Mexico that we actually eat, like elites, and how we treat the plant. And I said, well, you know, I don't have pork stock or pork or ham hocks, so I'm going to do it this way. And the only thing I had was chicken stock. And so I cook them the way I thought I would do them in Mexico. And I say, hey, Mike, you want to try this? And uh, he came in, and I gave him a bowl. And he goes, did you write down how you made that? And I said, why? He goes, they are really good, though. They're good. And I, I end up with a big pot. And we give them away to the people at the bar. And next Friday, Bobby promenade back. I made him again. People at the bar is going like, hey, did you get some more of those uh, turnip greens? And um, I said, yeah. So well, can we have some? So he started giving them to them. And eventually they said, we need some cornbread. 
Oh, yeah. Cornbread and turnip. And I said, oh, no. No, no, no. We're not going to do cornbread. Uh, in Mexico, we eat these things with tortillas. And, and that's true. That's, I didn't make it up. It's just the way we will eat it, you know. And they ask for it all the time and eventually end up putting them on the menu. And he worked 30 years later, and I have a book. I would never thought, and I always get asked about it, I said, I have no idea how important turnip greens are in the South. I, I, I really never in my mind understood that. And now here I am, you know, being praised sometimes for for the greens, and everybody wants to make them, and, and they do it. And I was on, in Memphis, and I had all these people from different parts of the United States going like, oh, thank you for sharing the recipe. You know, and I had an old lady that started crying because her husband used to make them all the time, and, and she called him Mike's Greens. His name was Mike, but he passed away. And I was there promoting the book, and she found out who I was. And she says, my husband and I used to go to your restaurant in 19, you know, 93, and he loved your greens, you know, and can I take my picture with you? And then she started crying, and I said, I don't know, no, no need to cry. I mean, I'm just so glad to tell the story. It's things like that. We have uh, so many things in common, and people don't even take the time to realize how similar we are. Our cultures are basically so close to each other, and I think that's why, you know, it's people like me who really embrace the South. It actually gets rewarded with a lot of friends. And to me, that's the most important thing. I've been able to make a lot of friends. Thank you so much for talking with us and helping us demystify this connection between turnip greens and tortillas. Thank you, Eddie. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for having me, Papi. I really, really love being here. Eddie Hernandez co-owner and executive chef at Taqueria del Sol in Atlanta. My name is Slavica Park, and I'm the founder of Kamal Heritage Food Incubator. In Denver, Colorado, Slavica Park is blazing a trail for immigrants who dream of opening their own restaurants. Even more than that, her food incubator is an inspiring space devoted exclusively to women who share these aspirations. When we met Slavica on a recent trip to Denver, her precise vision and passion for the program was obvious. First off, I asked her about the origins of Komal Heritage Food Incubator. You know, I, I was hired to help folks uh, work on their workforce development skills. But quickly, I discovered that there are so many women in the neighborhood with such an entrepreneurial spirit and such a beautiful untapped talent and passion for cooking. So Komal was born in a direct response to community's need and desire. And so we launched two years ago and started specifically with the Latino culture and cuisine and helping women um, learn the skills that they need to launch businesses in that uh, specific industry. But then we added also other cultures, Syrian and Ethiopian and Dominican and Argentinian. And it's just been an amazing um, cross-cultural kind of exchange place. But our main goal really is to uh, help women learn the skills they need to launch their business. 
Tell me how the program works and what the women get out of it. Sure. Uh, for, you know, we all know in the restaurant industry, year, year and a half, it's really nothing, right? Uh, but what I'm most proud of is that even during that time frame, we have gotten um, eight women uh, their business licenses. So they're on their own doing some catering, which, you know, we're very proud of. What we get out of you know, our program is four certificates. We, we train them in four different positions in the restaurant industry and hospitality. Everything from kitchen porter to the line chef to management position. Managing the front of the house, hiring, um, food sourcing, uh, finance, marketing, everything that's behind that. So that's, that's what they get from us. Or uh, we refer them to other restaurants if they're not quite ready to launch their own restaurant. One of the things that I'm very curious about is that describing all of the different cultures, who you are working with, how do you do a homogenous program with all of these different women from all of these different backgrounds and places? I always say that food is one of those things that transcends everything. Everybody connects around food. I mean, the goal, they all have the same goal. So my chef, God bless him, needing to learn so much about all these different cuisines to help uh, women in the program perfect their craft, has really done a tremendous job. But as far as the cultural differences, I, I really, my philosophy is that we all grow from it. We are richer as people, the more cultures we kind of incorporate into our day-to-day -day life. And that certainly has been the experience at Kamal. What is the common thread with the food? The common thread with the food, I mean, for them to be in our, we are not a culinary arts school. So they need to be able to cook their heritage foods before they enroll into the program. Our goal is to help them take that talent to the next level and launch their own businesses. Uh, so the common thread is their ability to cook uh, their uh, foods from, from their families. It's, it's really what home is for them. They connect to it. And so we really encourage them to reach back, all the way back. What did your grandma make? How did she make that? And so the goal of the program is really um, helping them refine that and really dig deep and discover that creativity. And for something that perhaps, you know, they did not always think like, who wants to eat my grandma's food? I got to Americanize this. We are really trying to encourage them to do quite the opposite. What's on the menu? I mean, whose culture, <laughs> whose culture gets to be on the menu every day? How do you do that? So obviously we started in a neighborhood that's predominantly Latino. So our Latino ladies have three days, Monday through Wednesday. But again, I mean, Mexican food is just so diverse. So even, you know, uh, our menu changes daily, daily. Depending if, or, let's say, Mexican ladies are from Durango region, or Michigan, or Oaxaca, or if they're from New Mexico, I mean, from um, Mexico City, they cook different things. Uh, so, but that's Monday through Wednesday. On Thursday, we have Ethiopian food, and on Friday, we have a Syrian food uh, day. And essentially, I wouldn't be shocked if every day is a different cuisine. What does the name mean? So Kamal is um, really deeply rooted into the Latino culture. And Kamal is like, first it was um, 
made out of clay and it's this um, clay kind of a dish that was put on top of rocks and it was then heated and the women made tortillas on that. Oh. So that's really what Kamal is. You can grill on it, you can make tortillas on it and we actually have Kamalas at our restaurant and we still light the fire underneath that and the women make tortillas on that. But what's really interesting, um, we also learned after we added our Syrian uh, women to the program that Kamal means perfection in Arabic. So it seems to be kind of <laughs> relevant across the different languages and cultures. But it really is very significant to the Latino food and the way the food was prepared in a slow way, way back then. Describe the, the area in Denver where, where Kamal is, is located. We strategically opened Kamal in Globeville area, which is Globeville area Swansea, known as the GES area of Denver. GES, it's the kind of a last neighborhood in Denver that's really holding on um, and, and, and trying to preserve some affordable housing for the folks who perhaps might be a little underserved or low income. And uh, so this was intentionally started in that neighborhood to help women from those neighborhoods earn some money and be able to continue to afford the rents and also stay to live in neighborhoods where they've lived forever. Now, of course, one of the salient points of all of this is that you are an immigrant. You are working with immigrants. In, unfortunately, the America we live in today, that has become an unusual tension. How is this affecting you and the people who you serve? First and foremost, I was just recently talking to someone. I, I came here as a refugee from Bosnia. So I, just this past March, I realized that I have lived longer in USA than in my home country. So in a sense, United States is my home as well. The one that I'm really grateful that's given me so much, but also at the same time, one that I'm extremely disappointed at right now. And what I'm seeing, you know, with, with the women in our program, I mean, you have a Latino woman and everybody, of course, assumes automatically they are undocumented and should be deported. Then you have Syrian women who are Muslim and, of course, they're terrorists, like they're going to, you know, pull up the bomb in a restaurant or whatever. But I, I have to say that at the same time, this has really mobilized a lot of people who think differently to really come out in droves and support us. And that really has been beautiful and wonderful to watch. But we do know that the other side exists as well. And, and I mean, it, it, it just really is an interesting, interesting time that we live in, in this country. Um, so much divide, and specifically when it comes to people who came from somewhere else. But at the end of the day, didn't we all, right? You know, my take on that is I believe that I have grown and become a better and richer person by living in different cultures. And I just really wish everybody could see that. And that is one of the first things I fell in love with America. It was just this diversity and acceptance of it. And just realizing that every person has certain talent that they bring to it. That was Slavica Park, founder of Komal Heritage Food Incubator in Denver, Colorado. How 
do you figure out how hot a chili pepper is before you buy it? And once you take it home, how do you safely handle it? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? We've just published our latest, a Mardi Gras visit with children's author and songstress Johnette Downing. So get the kids break out the king cake, and visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. How do you figure out how hot a chili pepper is before you buy it? And once you take it home, how do you safely handle it? Here's Eddie Hernandez's advice. Cut the chili open and hold it close to your nose. If you feel a tingling sensation, you know there's heat. Smaller peppers are usually hotter than larger ones. Peppers with broad shoulders and rounded tips, think bell pepper, are milder than those that are narrow and pointed. Thin, light brown stripes around the pepper are also an indication of heat. The more scarring, the older and hotter the pepper will be. Most peppers' heat is concentrated in the seeds, so the stem end tends to be the hottest part. Stick a toothpick into the seediest part of a pepper, then touch the tip to your tongue. That will help you gauge the burn. Capsaicin is the active component that causes the burn. To protect yourself, wear gloves when handling peppers. Or coat your hands with cooking oil before processing them. The oil will shield your hands from the burn. When you're finished, wipe the oil off and then just wash your hands. Without the oil, the burn can linger even after washing with soap and water because capsaicin isn't water-soluble. To learn more about cooking with chilies and other delicious things, get yourself a copy of Eddie Hernandez's book, Turnip Greens and Tortillas. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight. Refill the cup with my baby tonight. 
I like to sup with my baby tonight. Fill the cup with my baby tonight. But I ain't up to my baby tonight cause it's too dark. Hello, I'm Edward Lee from Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm a chef and a writer. Chef Edward Lee was born in Korea and raised in Brooklyn, but chose a slightly different path when in 2003 he migrated from New York to Louisville, Kentucky. Since then, Edward has made his mark in the Derby City and Washington, D.C. with a quintet of critically acclaimed restaurants. You may know him best, however, for his Emmy-nominated season of Mind of a Chef. The seven-time James Beard Award nominee was recently in New Orleans touring with his cookbook, Buttermilk Graffiti. We sat down with Edward to find out firsthand how that kid from Brooklyn gained international acclaim for fusing traditional Korean ingredients with flavors of the southern United States. So it's a long story. First of all, I don't know why, but when when I was in junior high school in in Brooklyn and all my friends were listening to hip hop, I was listening to Johnny Cash, and I don't know why. It just it started. I think it started with Folsom Prison Blues, um, and I don't because like no one in my family, like I have no connection to the South, like no one in my family's from here or anything. But I moved down here because of the Kentucky Derby. I think I had a little too much to drink, and and I just wound up. Uh, staying in Louisville for a little bit too long. I think any inquisitive chef is going to be um, influenced by his or her surroundings. And um, I didn't cook Southern food when I first moved down here. I mean, I was just, I had a restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky, um, 610 Magnolia, and I was just sort of cooking some weird Asian Eurocentric food. And, and you know, I remember the first day I, I drove by a, a stand and saw the word sorghum, you know, and I, and I kind of stopped and I said, what is it? And some redneck and dungarees said, you know, this is, you got to try this because it's made from a sorghum plant. And, and I tried it and I was like, oh, this is better than honey. So I started using that. And then someone introduced me to, you know, a locally milled grits. And I was like, wow, this is really good. Mm-hmm. So I started using that. So little by little, it, it really happened over a long period of time where I just started using these ingredients. And I, I, rarely did I use them in the traditional way. But I was finding all these ingredients being influenced by them and thinking like, man, these are delicious. I remember, you know, getting introduced to, to um, Colonel Newsom's country ham for the first time and thinking like, this is better than any prosciutto I've ever had in my life. Like, why am I using prosciutto? So little by little, my pantry changed. And as that happened, um, and obviously I traveled and, and was influenced by people. I remember going to a, a soul food restaurant for the first time. And I always say like, I remember the first time uh, uh, eating a bowl of collard greens and and finding home you know it it, to me it was like this is something that was even though it's not korean food at all it felt like it and it felt like something that was home and and i just remember thinking like i could stay here forever and cook you know if this is the food of the of this region i could be here forever i just feel that i have learned so much about you reading your new book and some of the things you think about fascinate me. And I have to admit that as a New Orleanian, I don't have a lot of Korean-American friends. Mm-hmm. What well, you and, do now? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the concept of sadness being passed through your DNA mm-hmm, mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. very enchanting to me uh-huh, to think uh-huh, about. Uh-huh. Would you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there's something about... 
being Korean, and, and, and I would say about any sort of peoples or cultures that have been oppressed for a long, long time, that there's something like when, when, I, when I meet another Korean person, doesn't matter you know, where they came from, like we, we generally can trace our ancestry and our sort of um, life experiences back to a similar place. And just like like my mom is like this kind of strong-willed, domineering person, like most Korean mothers are the same, you know. And so whenever I meet, I'm like, "Is your mom like that?" They're like, "Yeah, my mom's like that." And it's just it's very familial. But at the same time, like Korea had a very, very, really brutally oppressive history for for the last hundred years, really, and, and just you know post Korean War, um, where they sort of been able to climb out of that. And so like my parents and, and my grand, like I never knew my grandfather because he died before I was born, but my grandmother was a widow and, and did all the hardships, you know, they, they tell the story of my grandmother who like took her son, which is my dad, you know, wrapped when he was a, just a child, wrapped him up and like got on a boat with like 200 other people that she'd never met to escape the bombing in, in Seoul. Um, and just stuff like that. I think that, that that stuff gets passed on generation after generation. And some of it is narrative. But the other part, like, like if you ask most Koreans, they don't talk about it. You know, there, it's not something that, you know, culturally you just don't talk about. So I actually don't know a lot about it. But I still understand and I still feel the sort of pain in, in, in some kind of distant way. Well, I'm sitting here looking at you and thinking about the things you write about, the things you're fascinated about. And you're obviously very drawn to immigrants, assimilation, and the immigrant experience in America. And I can only imagine that you have had a very fascinating life because you're Korean American, mm -hmm. but maybe you could pass for all sorts of different ethnicities, mm -hmm. perhaps. Do you want to talk about that and what inspires you and, and, and fuels that exploration? When I started doing this project and I started traveling to all these cities around the country, and again, looking at it from a food lens, you know, what... And I pose this question to you, as I do to everyone: like, what thread binds us together as Americans in terms of our food, right? Because the 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 way you eat in New Orleans versus the way someone eats in Seattle, or someone eats in Southern California, or or the Midwest, is so different. There's so and 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 there's almost no continuity. There's almost nothing. It always makes me think like. What is it about, you know, like if you go to Italy, there's some sort of chain that, that binds it all together, France or Asia or, you know, South America. And I just, I look at America and I look at it, it's all of its, you know, vastness and I look at all the different layers and I go, what, I don't, I don't know what it, what binds us as Americans, what holds us together as Americans in the food space. But then you take it to another level and go, well, what, 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 what makes us Americans? You know, and I think that's the ultimate question. And the ultimate question for me is, in that vast sort of definition of America, where's my place in it? Where do I belong in it as this immigrant of Korean kids who 
grew up in Brooklyn but cooks Southern food and lives in the South but doesn't quite belong in the South but in part of the South. And, you know, and, and I think all of us are just looking for our place in this world. And, and when it comes to a culinary or cultural landscape in America, like where do I fit in? Um, and I don't have the answer for that. But one of the things that I did realize was in writing this book, like it's our diversity that, that it's the only thing that I can really say that's truly American is our diversity, right? I spent a week in Italy like a couple of years ago because my friend got married there. So I had to spend a week in the same town. And <laughs> it, was, it was the region where, I can't remember the name, but it was the region where they make pesto. Uh-huh. And for the first two days, I was in heaven because I was like, this is the best. It was amazing. And by the third day, I was like, does anyone know a Chinese restaurant in this town? Because I'm kind of <laughs> sick of pesto. And by the fourth day, I was just like, I can't eat another bite of this thing. And I just wanted anything. And, and, but there, they never get sick of it. There, they, they don't want anything else. They go, and I was like, can I just even get like a, a, a spicy red sauce? They were like, we don't. We make pesto. <laughs> we make pesto. And and we don't and we don't we ha, they, we have make seafood pasta, but we don't put lemon in it because it's not it's not lemons don't grow here, you know. And and just that that kind of very strict traditionalism, which is fine for for that part of Italy, would never fly here because we demand diversity. We want diversity in our food. We want to wake up and eat fried chicken and have an Indian food for lunch and have hummus for dinner. Like, we, and that's not even weird. But it's something we're American. because we're American. But it's something that in any other country would be such a luxury, would be such a weird thing because you don't do that. You don't eat outside of your, you know, your class or your race or your whatever it is. And here, you know, that's the one thing that I can find about this country that we can all agree on is that we like our food and we like our food to be very different. We want choices and we want diversity. And so if we if we just take that as a starting point, then we can and you know see it through all the other circles of culture and be like, of course, where would we be without immigrants and their food and their we wouldn't cultures? Be. Yeah, we yeah. just wouldn't be. And I'm so glad that you talked about being in Italy and saying, "Where's the Chinese restaurant?" <laughs> because when you're exploring almost anything anywhere, you inevitably seem to ask. Where's the Chinese restaurant? They're everywhere. <laughs> it, it's incredible. And what I would like to bring this whole conversation back to about Asian food and Southern food is I would like you to take us all to the Hibachi Buffet yeah. in Clarksdale, <laughs> Mississippi, where you can get sushi, fried foods, salad, and soul food. And in the kitchen, somehow... There's a Chinese man, a young Mexican, and an African-American woman. So where do you find the sensibilities and all that? And what the heck were you doing at the Hibachi Buffet? And it's, it's funny, and it's, a, and it's a Japanese name. There's like not a single Japanese person in the whole place. Um, and, and, you know, this is, it's funny because I was in, yeah, I was in Clarksdale, right? And, then everyone, so, and everyone, everyone that was a foodie, right, was like, don't go there. It's not, and it wasn't. It wasn't like it wasn't something that I would go like, oh my god. But but to me, that restaurant and, and how they existed was so symbolic. It was like a microcosm of America to me. That is so American. 
in, in that you have these people and and what we do here in this country is we coexist with each other. And sometimes that, that, that existence is not happy. Sometimes it's very tense. Sometimes it's violent. Sometimes it's harmonious. Sometimes it's wonderful. But we do. We just sit here and, and we, we, we are so many different people. It's, you know, it's like a big soup. And every generation we just keep throwing ingredients in it. And sometimes the soup is not very good. And sometimes the soup needs improvements. But sometimes it's fabulous. And, and it just we just keep throwing it. And it's never going to end. It's never going to be finished. And it's not pleasant sometimes. And it's not very neat and, and, and doesn't have closure. Um, but that's who we are. And, and, and I think the sooner that we embrace that, both in its food and the cultural implications, we can start to sort of understand like like these differences are our strength as well. That was Chef Edward Lee, author of Buttermilk Graffiti. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcasts, along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau. And from Tableau, brunch and dinner daily with outdoor balcony dining overlooking Jackson Square. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mullady. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.